You know, there's a, a significant moment in Mark chapter 6 where Jesus does what in the eyes and minds of the disciples is unthinkable. Up until Mark chapter 6, Jesus has been preaching repentance and about the kingdom. He has been healing the sick. He's been casting out demons. But then in Mark 6, he sets apart his 12 disciples into groups of two. And he sends them out with the same power that he has. And they go from city to city in groups of two, and they begin preaching repentance, preaching that the kingdom has come near. They are healing the sick. They are casting out demons. They return back to Jesus after their first mission trip, and they are shocked. They are blown away that God would use them to do the same things that Jesus has already done. But then Jesus speaks to his disciples and he tells them this in Mark 6.31. He says, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. You see, Jesus knew that when you're pouring yourself out and you're continually investing in other people, it's exhausting. And so Jesus wanted to give his disciples a gift, rest. Well, when we get to Acts 18, we see where the Apostle Paul has been grinding on his second missionary journey. He's been taking the gospel into new territory and facing intense persecution, experiencing great successes and sufferings. He arrives finally in the city of Corinth, weary and exhausted. But what we're also going to see this morning in the text is that God loves to give good gifts to his servants to strengthen them for the days ahead. Let me show you. Grab your Bible. Turn with me to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. We as a faith family are walking through this great historical narrative of seeing the explosion of the gospel that began in Jerusalem and is now going outward. That when Jesus said in in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, he meant it. That indeed the gospel took root in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit falls at Pentecost. Peter stands up and preaches. 3,000 people come to faith in Christ and are baptized. We see where the gospel begins to gain momentum in the city of Jerusalem. Acts chapter 7, Stephen is stoned and the church scatters for their lives in Acts chapter 8, but the gospel goes with them. That the gospel is going from Jerusalem into Judea and then Samaria. And then we see in Acts 13, where the Holy Spirit taps the Apostle Paul on the shoulder and calls him and sets him apart for the sake of getting the gospel to the nations. And he begins his first missionary journey. We see the gospel is now spreading outward, where the gospel is being preached by the Apostle Paul amongst people who have never heard of Jesus. Last week, we saw where Paul, on his second missionary journey, has made his way to Athens. He made a brief stay there, and then he makes a 53-mile hike to the city of Corinth. And that is where we pick up in Acts 18, beginning with verse 1, and the scripture says this. After this, he left Athens and went to Corinth, where he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. 
Paul came to them, and since they were of the same occupation, tent makers by trade, he stayed with them and worked. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself to preaching the word and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. When they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his clothes and told them, your blood is on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God whose house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord along with his whole household. Many of the Corinthians, when they heard, believed and they were baptized. The Lord said to Paul in the night vision, don't be afraid, but keep on speaking and don't be silent. For I am with you, and no one will lay a hand on you to hurt you, because I have many people in this city. He stayed there a year and a half, teaching the word of God among them. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack against Paul and brought him to the tribunal. This man, they said, is persuading people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. As Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or a serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you Jews. But if these are questions about words, names, and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of such things. So he drove them from the tribunal, and they all seized Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal, but none of these things mattered to Gallio. Paul is weary. He's exhausted. He's wrapping up his second missionary journey. He has spent almost at the end of his journey three years traveling more than 1,500 miles, most of it by foot. Quick review. After traveling through Asia Minor, strengthening the churches that he had planted on his first missionary journey, the Spirit of God leads him to Philippi, where he heals a demon-possessed girl that causes a riot. He and Silas are imprisoned until an earthquake opens the prison doors. In a devastating earthquake, he is eventually released and then forced to leave the city. He then goes to Thessalonica, where he sees ministry success. People are coming to faith in Christ. Transformation is happening, and a church is planted. But then persecution begins to rise up against him there in Thessalonica. So he leaves there, goes to the town of Berea. When he gets there, he finds people who are eager to receive the word of God. They're examining the scriptures to make sure everything Paul is saying is accurate. People are coming to faith in Christ. But the Jews who persecuted up in Thessalonica find out about what's happening in Berea. They come and they attack him there in Berea. So in the cover of night, he leaves by himself from Berea and he goes to the ancient city of Athens. It is there in Athens that he gives a brilliant sermon defending the gospel that went largely ignored. He then moves on to Corinth, a bustling cosmopolitan city, a city full of businessmen and politicians and sailors who were back from their time at sea, all of them conducting business. But there in the heart of Corinth is a temple to the Greek goddess of Epaphrodite, the goddess of love. 
The worship of Epaphrodite included grotesque sexual immorality by temple prostitutes. Corinth would be like a modern-day Vegas. If you can imagine the strip in Vegas of just grotesque sexual immorality, that's what was happening there in, in Corinth. In fact, the word Corinthian, it meant, even in that day, impurity. Corinthian meant sexual perversion. If someone was a Corinthian, they were a party-going playboy. Now, you can see that when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, he had to address a lot of issues because the church in Corinth was beginning to look a whole lot more like the world than it did look like Jesus. Well, this is the city where Paul now finds himself in this chaotic pagan city where people are doing grotesque, terrible things and all of this chaos going around them. And what is he feeling? What is Paul feeling in this moment? Well, he tells the church at Corinth exactly how he feels in this moment in Acts 18. He says, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. Paul's weak. He's exhausted. He's overwhelmed. He's experienced beatings and imprisonments in Philippi. He was run out of Thessalonica and Berea, scoffed at in Athens. And he's probably still weak from all of the times he took those beatings. But in his weakness, Christ is strong. Paul keeps going. He had this laser-like focus of wanting to get the gospel to those who had never heard. He knew that heaven and hell hung in the balance and that if people had never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, they would be destined for an eternity separated from God. So he kept going. He kept pursuing in the midst of hardship and suffering. He had this, this grit to keep going. But at the same time, he arrives in Corinth and he's exhausted. He's fearful. He's scared, he's tired, he's overwhelmed. He's like a heavyweight boxer in round 12 of a championship bout. He's exhausted. Maybe today you find yourself exhausted. Maybe today you're fearful or you feel overwhelmed by life or things that are happening. I want you to note today in the text, I want you to notice God loves you so much. And God sees Paul, but God sees you. And he sees what you're experiencing right now. And one of the ways that God displays his love for you is that he gives you gifts. God loves to give his children good gifts. What we're going to see this morning in the text are four gifts that God gives to Paul when he's feeling exhausted, overwhelmed, and stressed out. These are good gifts that are given to you as well. I want you to see them here in the text. The first is this. The first gift is the gift of good friends. The gift of good friends. As Paul arrives in Corinth, he meets Aquila and Priscilla, a husband-wife team who have arrived from Rome after the Jews had ordered that they have to leave the capital city of Rome. Isn't it interesting that persecution against Jews is nothing new? have been happening for thousands of years. Well, forced to leave Rome, Priscilla and Aquila, they come to Corinth to maintain their family business of tent making, 
just like Paul. Paul was bivocational. He was a tent maker as a way of creating income so he could continue to do ministry. Well, at this point, Priscilla and Aquila, I think they're possibly already Christ followers in this moment. But this husband and wife team becomes such close, special friends with Paul. What begins here in Corinth will begin a gospel partnership and gospel ministry that's going to last for decades. In fact, in Romans 16, Paul commends Priscilla and Aquila as a husband and wife team that risked their very lives for him. But then did you see who also shows up? Verse 5, Silas and Timothy. They finally caught up with Paul. The gang is back together. As Paul has hit a low, God puts new friends and old friends around Paul to encourage him, to, to walk alongside him, to serve with him. You see, one of God's good gifts that he gives to us are friends who point us to Jesus. Paul needed it, and you need it. I need it. You see, friends are some of God's good gifts to help us persevere in the faith. You need people in your life who will encourage you and laugh with you and make fun of you. You need that in your life. People who are going to share meals with you and you can enjoy doing life together as you follow Jesus together. You've got to have that. You see, friendship is important to God. We see this with God gives uh, to King David. He gives him a friend in Jonathan. We see with Job, God gives him friends. We see with uh, Daniel, he gives him Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There are friendships that are forged and made. Jesus told the disciples in John chapter 15, verse 15, I no longer call you servants, but friends. You see, Jesus is the friend of sinners. He is the friend who Proverbs 18, 24 is the friend that sticks closer than a brother. Jesus Christ is the ultimate friend who draws near to people who are broken like us. And he creates a friendship amongst us. But you see, he also creates and gives to us the gift of other friends here in our life. And if you don't have good friends who point you to Jesus, I want to invite you. Would you pray about that? Would you pray and say, God, would you bring people into my life who I can be begin having friendships? We can have a relationship together. We can have fun and live life and do life together. We can encourage one another. We can forge that. But you see, in order to have friends, you've got to be a good friend. You've got to be someone who people want to be around, that you have a, a character that is trustworthy, that you are someone that people just want to hang out with. You see, friendship's a big deal to God. And one of the things that God has given to you to help you persevere and endure in the Christian life are brothers and sisters, friends who walk alongside you. Now, I have heard, and I've seen it somewhat, that as you get older, it becomes harder to make new friends. You get set in your ways. You have a certain pattern and rhythm to your life. Can I say to you that it, one of the things that you're going to need in your life as you grow old, as you get closer to the finish line of pursuing Jesus, is you need other brothers and sisters who will walk alongside you. Now, it takes time, y'all. It takes time and sacrifice. You have to carve out intentionally time to engage people. But as Paul is weary and exhausted and stressed out, he has this moment in which God shows him how much he loves him and gives him the gift of friendship. 
but there also we see in the text that God gives him another gift, the gift of gospel fruit. Gospel fruit. In Corinth, Paul is preaching the word. He's pointing the Jews, verse five, to Jesus as the promised Messiah. Paul was preaching Christ and him crucified. Paul was eager to point all of the Jews to the Lord Jesus Christ. He would probably go to Isaiah 53 and make a beeline to Jesus and say, Jesus is the suffering servant. He may have gone to Psalm 22 where the psalmist declares, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And said, this psalm finds its fulfillment in Jesus. He may have gone to Genesis 3.15 and pointed to the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. That seed is the Lord Jesus Christ who through the cross destroys Satan and all of his enemies. What we see is Paul preaching the Old Testament. But as he's bringing the word of God to the Jews there in the synagogue in Corinth, they're scoffing at him. The text says that they're blaspheming. They're rejecting the gospel. They're not receiving what the Holy Spirit is revealing through the apostle Paul. So Paul says, that's it. He takes off his garment. He shakes it out as a symbol of, I'm done with you guys. I have preached the gospel. The blood is no longer on my hands. I have preached the gospel. You guys are the ones who have rejected it. I'm done throwing pearls amongst swine. And he leaves there and he goes next door to the house. What's his name, Kenneth? I forgot it. Where'd it go? Tidius Justice, verse seven. He goes next door to Tidius's house. And who's Tidius? Here's a guy who's a God-fearer, okay? Now remember, we've discussed it several weeks ago. A God-fearer is a Gentile who's converted to Judaism, all right? Uh, a a, a God-fearer, they don't have Abraham's blood pumping through their veins. They're Gentile, like the majority of us here probably, but they've converted to Judaism. Well, this guy, Titius, and his family, they hear the gospel, and they're like, we need Christ. They believe the gospel. And isn't it interesting that there's this momentum that begins to take place right next door to the synagogue? What a stumbling block. What a, what a moment. But then we also see something else happen. We see there in the text, verse 8, Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, he comes to faith in Christ. Talk about scandal amongst the Jews. The leader of the synagogue is now a follower of Jesus. And moreover, verse 8, many of the Corinthians, when they heard, they believed, and they were baptized. This is incredible. Like the gospel's bearing fruit. God is encouraging Paul by giving him the fruit of his ministry. Saying, man, look, Paul, what you're doing. You're preaching Christ. You keep going. I know you're exhausted. I know you're overwhelmed by life, but you keep going. The gospel's bearing fruit. People are jumping kingdoms. They're going from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of lights. People's lives are being forever transformed by the good news of Jesus. And what is God doing? God is pulling back the curtain and showing Paul the impact that his life is having. I want to say to you, oftentimes, God will hide from you the depth and the breadth of the impact of your life on other people in the kingdom. God loves you so much, he will often protect you from you. Because if you knew the impact that your life was having on the kingdom, I think two things would happen. You would become prideful and or complacent. 
You'd become prideful because you would think, man, look at all these things that are happening because of me. And God's like, "Uh uh-uh. I can do this without you, bro. But I think the other side is complacency because we might come to the point saying, man, look at all these amazing things that are happening. I'm going to mail it in. I'm good. I'm going to retire. I'm going to take it easy from working hard in the kingdom. But oftentimes God will blind us from seeing the greatest impact that our lives are having for his kingdom to protect us from pride. But at the same time, when you're weary and exhausted, watch and see where God very may graciously pull back the curtain to show you what he's doing in and through your life. Here is Paul exhausted and weary and pouring himself out, but now he's seeing momentum. This incredible sermon he preached in Acts 17 was met with a yawn by the majority of the Athenians. And then he comes to Corinth, this pagan city with people living jacked up lives. It is a mess. It's a dumpster fire. All of the grotesque and terrible sin around him. And he begins preaching Jesus and people are like, man, I need Christ. I know my life is messed up. Give me Jesus. What a picture of what we should be like, right? We know our lives are messed up apart from Jesus, all of us. The question is, are we willing to admit it? But apart from Jesus, we know our life is falling apart. But when we come to Christ, he changes us. He transforms us. He makes us clean. We don't get cleaned up and then come to Jesus. We come to Jesus and he cleans us up. And this is what's happening. Paul's preaching Jesus and lives are being changed. And so God is encouraging Paul with the gift of gospel fruit. And so when you go through times of difficulty and trial and exhaustion and you're overwhelmed, watch and see what the Lord may do of pulling back the curtain and letting you see the impact that he's having, he's having through your life. So we see the gift of good friends We see the gift of gospel fruit, but we also see a third gift. It's the gift of Jesus's encouragement. Paul's being strengthened in Corinth. He has old friends who are showing back up, new friends that he's making, new believers who are being discipled. We're seeing baptisms. We're we're seeing a church plant. Can I just press pause for a moment? Can we celebrate just a moment? That's what Jesus is doing in our church right now. Can we celebrate Jesus and what he's doing in our church right now? I'm going to unpack this more next week. We're going to take a break from Acts next week. Can I hear, as your pastor, I need you back here next week. Because we're going to take some time to celebrate. Your hands are going to get really, like, bruised. Because we're going to celebrate Jesus and what he is doing in our church. It's going to be a really important message next week that I'm going to be sharing, not only about what he has doing, but where we're going to be going as a church. So please be here next week. But here's Paul, and God's doing these amazing things in Corinth. But then he receives encouragement from Jesus himself. Look at verse 9. Jesus says, don't be afraid. But keep on speaking and don't be silent. Verse 10, for I am with you. 
and no one will lay a hand on you to hurt you because I have many people in this city. The same voice that Paul heard on the Damascus road in Acts 9, he's hearing it again here in Acts 18. This voice is familiar. This voice has a Galilean accent. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who is personally encouraging Paul in the midst of his time of discouragement. I want you just, you lo- I love this here where Jesus comes and he speaks right into his life. There are several things that I, I love about this text. One of this is that Paul knows what it's like to be afraid. Now for me, he's one of the heroes of my life. Like I came to faith in Jesus because I read some of Paul's writings and God used his letters to bring me to faith in Jesus. I love this brother. And sometimes I will hold him up in such a reverence. But then what I love here is I see his humanity. He's exhausted. He's stressed. He's afraid. Have you ever been afraid? Have you ever been fearful? I know I have. I feel like in many ways it's a constant companion in my life. But what I see here is where Jesus himself speaks directly to Paul and says, don't be afraid. For some of you today, just as God sees Paul, just as God knows what Paul is feeling, God sees you and he knows what you're feeling. And if today you feel fearful or afraid, let verse nine just sink down into your soul and hear the words of Jesus directly to you. Don't be afraid. When you get the cancer diagnosis, don't be afraid. When you have someone who has turned their back on you and deceived you, don't be afraid. When you have a child who's walking in disobedience and it is heartbreaking, don't be afraid. When you have to make a really difficult decision at work, don't be afraid. When you are staring down death itself and you're laying on your deathbed, don't you dare for a second, don't be afraid. Why? Verse 10, for I am with you. Jesus promises his permanent presence in your life. When you are stressed and anxious and overwhelmed, the Lord Jesus himself is speaking to Paul and the Lord Jesus himself is speaking to you through his word. Don't be afraid. I am with you. Isn't it amazing here that in a moment where Paul needed encouragement the most, Jesus is the one who comes and encourages him. You see, the ascended king of heaven still speaks to his people today. Jesus still speaks. And Jesus still speaks primarily through his word. If you want to hear God speak to you, read your Bible out loud. This is where God speaks. He reveals himself with great clarity and accuracy. We can know his thoughts and know his ways through his word. And you know what's amazing? Here he provides encouragement. And do you know what 
I love about the culture of our church. I think we're doing well here, but I think we can continue to get better, is that we would cultivate a culture of encouragement in which we are regularly affirming and speaking words of life and encouragement to one another. You see, on, on Sunday mornings when you gather, your, your, your thoughts sh- should not be, boy, I hope we sing songs I like, or I hope the message is, is funny and compelling, or, or I hope the coffee tastes good. Okay, let's, let's erase the chalkboard. No, 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 no. Lord, who can I encourage today? Who can I encourage? Who can I come alongside and build up and champion? Isn't it interesting that in he, the book of Hebrews, you, it's written to a group of Jewish Christians who are being persecuted and they're tempted to walk away from Jesus. And one of the, the weapons that the writer of Hebrews is giving to these believers to help them in, uh, to remain in the faith is encouragement. Encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. Your words of encouragement very well may be used by God to rescue someone from walking away from Jesus. That's power. There's moments in your life that you could right now recall if I put a microphone on stage and you walked around and just told stories of times in which you were just discouraged and then someone encouraged you. It totally transformed your life. I've told you stories in which people in our church and outside the church who have just said something at the right time in the right way and it totally changed the way I was thinking and feeling and living in that moment. Oh, that God would cultivate that amongst us that when we gather, we are regularly looking to encourage one another. This week as I was doing my, my sermon prep, I oftentimes will, will close my eyes and I will see you where you're sitting. Okay, so you can't move your seats, by the way. You gotta stay there. I'm kidding. Please don't stay in the same place. And give your seat to the visitors, by the way. Give your But I think of you. I think of you. And I was just praising the Lord as I was thinking about so many of you in this room that I wish I, could, I had time to call out by name to talk about how you've encouraged me. You just take these moments just to speak a word of encouragement and life and affirmation. And there's things happening in my life or in someone else's life. And when you encourage them, you have no idea that you're able to meet a need that that person has. Every person you meet needs encouragement. Every single person. Every person you meet is feeling stressed, exhausted, overwhelmed. They're in pain. They have questions. They're struggling. We are still in this earthly tent that has fallen. The, the, the way that we think and the way that we feel, we're still fighting against the flesh and against the world and against the devil. You have people in your life who need the words of Jesus spoken over them and into them. And oh, how easy it is to criticize. It's easy to... Oh, that God would create a culture of grace and tenderness and truth and love. Here is Jesus meeting with Paul in his, one of his lowest moments. And he's like, you're my boy. And I'm so proud of you. I'm with you. Don't you dare be afraid. You keep preaching my word. You keep being faithful. Don't you dare for a back down for a moment. I'm going to protect you. We're going to get there in a moment. I'm going I'm to hold you fast. There are people in this city who don't know me yet, but they're about to through your ministry. So you keep preaching. You keep being faithful. Can I say to you today, God does not look at you with his arms crossed with frustration. That's not how God sees his children. 
just as you delight in seeing your children play on a playground and they don't have to do anything to impress you, but you just delight in the fact that you're yours, God delights all the more to see you being his child, living for his glory. And whether you do a great performance for him or not at all, he just cares about you. He's a happy God who takes great delight in you. You don't have to impress him. He is a God of encouragement. You and I get to encourage one another all the more as we see the day approaching. So we see God giving good gifts to his children, especially to Paul, but applies to us. The gift of good friends, the gift of, come on, Bruce, gospel fruit. We see the gift of encouragement from Jesus. But fourth and finally, we see the gift of God's protection. The gift of God's protection. Jesus promised no one's going to touch you while you're here. Now that's followed by a moment where the Apostle Paul's taken before the tribunal, before the Jews who want to take him and have him arrested and persecuted because he's taken down our religious system. But isn't it so good before Paul can even say a word? The guy who's in charge says, no, we're not doing this. He's free to go. Y'all need to stop. It's the gift of God's promise of his protection of the Apostle Paul. Now, I've got to be careful here. When God promises Paul his protection, he doesn't mean for the rest of Paul's life. Because Paul's going to suffer, y'all. As we go further along in the book of Acts, and as we're going to see through his, his letters and his writings, and as Paul, he's going to suffer, and he's going to die a terrible death. But God's promise of his protection is placed here for the city of Corinth. But here's what you and I can take away from that, is God's promise of his protection in our life does not mean that you are physically always going to be safe. It means that you will eternally always be safe. That though there are people who will kill your body, they cannot touch your soul. Though there are people who will physically beat you up, though they can harm you, they cannot touch you. You're safe in the arms of God. We see where God promises his protection of his people. It applies to Paul here in this city in this moment in Acts 8. But it does apply to us over time. That though physically you may face difficulty, hardship, suffering, beatings, no one can touch your soul. So Kenneth, what are you calling us to? What's your impact point? And it's this. May it be so about us that we as a church make encouragement a daily habit beginning this week. It's a daily habit. It's what you do. It's part of the culture of who you are. You wake up and think, who can I encourage? Who can I pour into? Several weeks ago, I got a card from a precious senior adult saint in our church. And she wrote me this card. And on the inside, she said, I'm so thankful you're my pastor. You obey and follow the words of our Heavenly Father. You teach us the word. I pray you have someone you can talk with and share your inner feelings with because pastors need this also. I love you and your family. And this gift of encouragement meant the world to me. Oh, that you and I would continue to do this with one another all the more as we see the day approaching. There are people in your life 
people on this campus who need the encouragement of Jesus. And what an opportunity that we have with our lives to extend that grace to others. If you're here today and you're exhausted and weary, Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. That's one of his many good gifts is encouragement. And it's all offered through the gospel.